To you, Father, we come in the name of your Son, and we invoke your presence here this morning. We ask you, Lord, to minister to each of our hearts according to our individual needs. Scripture teaches us that we are to submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee. And we do that, Lord, this morning. And pray that you will be present in a powerful way to teach us from your word. It is your Holy Spirit who is able to illumine our minds and give us understanding and take us beyond understanding to application and to obedience. And so we ask that you will bring us through that process and that the truths of your word today will speak clearly to us. And Lord, we ask that throughout this Sunday school this morning as the word is taught, that you will bless student and teacher alike as the service is transpiring, that you will be present in the preaching of the word. And Lord, throughout the city of Reading, wherever the word of God is being rightly proclaimed today, we ask that you will anoint and empower, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus, please. The book of Exodus, chapter 4. I'd like to read the first nine verses of Exodus, chapter 4. Then Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it. And he became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, that is Yahweh there, the God, the Elohim, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And the Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And it shall come about that if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But it shall be that if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground." Last week we began looking at this particular passage. Moses with his encounter with the Lord there at the burning bush. Powerful encounter. As you study it in detail, it, it just has to strike to the depth of our being. As we can certainly put ourselves into Moses' place. And understand why he thought the way he thought, why he reacted the way he reacted in that situation. Moses was given by God these signs. God has already commanded him to take a message to Israel that God is going to deliver them. And, and Moses is very hesitant because he's been pushing sheep through the wilderness for 40 years. It's a really lonely job. And it's really not much preparation for anything else except pushing sheep through the wilderness. And it was a giant, you know, in, in, eyes, in human eyes, it was a great fall from having been a prince, maybe even crown prince, in the land of Egypt. So both to convince Moses himself and then through Moses to convince Israel 
that God was really speaking through Moses and God was intending to deliver Israel, God gave these signs, the sign of the transformed staff. And we noted last week that this was no minor sign. The fact that Moses fled from the snake, the serpent, indicated that it was a very dangerous animal. And it was a tremendous act of faith for him to reach out and grasp this thing by its tail for it to be converted back into a staff. Because, I mean, he had no experience with this before, and he knew what these animals were like. He'd been living in the wilderness for 40 years, and he'd seen the ever variety it was around. And then for him to put his hand into his bosom and pull it out, it was leprous. The, the most uh, frightening of all diseases of that day was leprosy, because it was a slow, agonizing death. A death by, by inches. Uh, you know, a death where you were totally ostracized from your society. You were a pariah, if you will. And it was the most devastating thing. And, and for these two signs then, the scripture says in verse 8, And it shall come about that if they will not believe you or take heed of the witness of the first sign, they will believe the witness of the second sign. And the word there, witness, is literally the Hebrew word voice. The voice of this sign. The sign is crying out that this is true. That this is God. And so we have a, a witness here. And of course that's what our witness is. Whether it is verbal or whether it is by our lives or whatever it means. It's a voice nevertheless to the spirit of another person. And this voice was proclaiming the truth of Moses' message. That Moses isn't some sunstruck shepherd coming in out of the wilderness and saying, I'm here in the hands of the God. To... No, but he's really sent by the Lord to lead Israel out of bondage. Now Israel, the, the people of Israel, we can't speak for all two million or however many there were of them at this time, but certainly great numbers of them had hoped and they had prayed for deliverance for eons, it would seem to them, for generations. They had been seeking God, the, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Certainly they knew this God, at least by name, or else it wouldn't be any use for Moses going and proclaiming, I have come in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had been praying to this God for deliverance, and, and the skies, the heavens were as brass, it would have seemed to them, because nothing happened, no deliverance was coming, there was no salvation for them, it seemed. And so what hope did they have? Certainly probably many of them gave up all hope. God's not going to come. Forget it. We're just going to have to be slaves from now until who knows how far into the future. So God sent signs so that they could believe. Voices that would cry to them. This is the truth. This is the man sent by God. This is the message of God. The voice of the signs of the staff and of the leprous hand. But God knew that some hearts would still be hard, and some would still have so little hope that they, they even through those two signs they wouldn't believe. So God said, I will give yet a third sign. The water taken from the Nile River, dipped out of the Nile, and poured onto the dry land by Moses would turn to blood. This verse, I mean, this, this sign is only described in a single verse, but that doesn't mean it's a, it's a minor sign. It's a very, very important sign when you think about it here. Because the Nile was the sacred river of Egypt. It was the, it was the very coarse um, flow of life 
in Egypt. Without the Nile, all of Egypt would have been as the rest of the Sahara Desert was, virtually uninhabitable. And so the Nile was, was deified by the Egyptians, literally deified by the Egyptians. If you go back into Egyptian history, the, the original god of the Nile was Hapi. And, and Hapi was usually worshipped at the cataracts of the Nile, where the water made the last tumbles is before it came on down into the valley of uh, Egypt itself. And they worshipped this androgynous god as the, the god who controlled the flood of the river. But through the centuries, other gods were attached to the Nile. And of course, the most important of all the gods attached to the Nile was Osiris. And uh, Osiris was the god who died, who was, who was immersed in the Nile, who was resurrected out of the Nile, according to their uh, theology. And therefore, he represented the, 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 all the life-giving uh, flow and the rebirth every year that came through the Nile. He represented that. And so he was highly worshipped in Egypt. He was one of the top gods in Egypt. And so for them to see this sacred flow touched by a prophet of another god, the god, in fact, of an enslaved people, would be a profound thing to happen to Egyptians. It would indicate that their gods, whether you're talking about the sun god Amun-Ra, or you're talking about Osiris, or his wife Isis, or their child Horus, or whatever gods you're talking about, they all would be weak and powerless compared to this, this god of the Israelites if he could touch that sacred water and convert it into blood. It was a powerful sign. It was a sign that not any Israelite at all could really deny as, as demonstrating the reality of God, and it would shake the Egyptians. And, of course, as we go through later on, the, the whole account of God's touch upon Egypt through Moses and Aaron, we're going to see that later on the whole Nile and all the water of Egypt will be converted into blood, and this has a profound impact upon the Egyptians. In fact, most of the Egyptians were much earlier ready to let the Israelites go than was Pharaoh, because Pharaoh was God's instrument that he was using to accomplish his purpose. Now, I think when we first introduced uh, this topic of the life of Moses, I talked a little bit about Egypt. And let me just refresh our minds on why it was that the Nile flooded annually. That was the very key to life, of course, because if the Nile simply flowed in its course the same level all year round, they could extract water out and use it for irrigation, as they've been doing for centuries. But the soil in desert areas, if you just irrigate and irrigate and irrigate and you never flood it or flush it, becomes ultimately alkaline and, and thus basically worthless because you have the constant evaporation and leaving behind of the salts. So the annual flooding of the Nile uh, brought this water all across the entire valley of the uh, Nile River. And it would, of course, flush the soils, wash the soils, and would deposit new earth washed down from the Ethiopian highlands. And so it would be rejuvenating the soil every year. Now, why did it do this? It wasn't because of Hopi or Osiris or any other god, as we well know. There was a, a clear physical cause. And if you're familiar with the monsoon phenomenon, which occurs primarily in East Asia, there is also a monsoon phenomenon that occurs in North Africa. North Africa is broad enough in the 
subtropical regions north of the equator all the way up uh, past the Tropic of Cancer, it's broad enough there that when it heats during what we would call the North, Northern Hemisphere summer, it creates a low pressure area. And that low pressure area doing the heating causes a rising of the air which sucks the air in horizontally off the ocean. And it primarily comes in off the Indian Ocean, which is moisture laden. The, the air is moisture laden as it comes in off the Indian Ocean. It hits the Ethiopian highlands. Now the Ethiopian highlands rise up 15,000 feet or more. And it causes deluges of rain to fall in the Ethiopian highlands. And the primary uh, uh, drainage of these Ethiopian highlands is the Blue Nile out of Lake Tana. And as the Blue Nile comes down, it brings all that flood water and it dumps it into the White Nile and they, when they converge near Khartoum and it becomes the Nile, just simply the Nile. And, and it's the flooding of the blue which brings the flooding of the lower portion of the Nile which occurs in the end of summer and into fall in, um, in Egypt. But of course they didn't understand all this mechanism, the Egyptians didn't. So to them it was the gods who did it. So if Israel's God could touch this river, then Israel God, Israel's God was obviously more powerful than the gods of Egypt. Verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who's made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and, you, and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you, thou wilt. Then the, Lord, then, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, you shall, he shall speak for you to the people. And it shall come about that he shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be as God to him. And you shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Well, Moses has offered every excuse he could so far. His one last excuse to offer the Lord. I've never been eloquent. How can I go before, Mo, uh, before Israel? How can I go before, uh, for, before Pharaoh and proclaim your words? I'm not eloquent. I am not persuasive in speech. I have never been persuasive in speech. I am, uh, I have not, of course, in the last 40 years been persuasive because all I've had to speak to primarily are these sheep. And you know, Lord, even as you have been speaking to me now, I am not eloquent. He says, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The, literally, uh, the Hebrew there is thick-tongued. He is thick-tongued. Well, the Lord's response is very typical of the Lord. Moses, who made your mouth anyway? It's God who gives the gift of sight, the gift of hearing, the gift of speech. Do we ever think about that very much? You know, when we get up each day, we can see, hopefully. We can hear, maybe not as well as we used to. Uh, we can speak. Uh, where do we have these gifts? Because not everybody has all those gifts. 
Some are even born without possessing some or all of those gifts. And God acknowledges that. It's God who gives these. And if any of these gifts is abnormal and God expects us to use them, He will make them so they will be usable. He will enable us to hear, to see, or to speak whatever is needed to accomplish His purposes if He is called upon us to do a work which requires such a gift. It's a very, very important concept here. Because many times we feel that we can't serve the Lord because we're not gifted in the area where God is calling us to serve. But God doesn't call us into areas of service where he will not gift us or enable us. Sometimes we may plunge into an area of service and expect God to gift us, but he hasn't called us into that area of service, and we do make a mess out of it. There's a concept or a saying that we've all heard, I think, one time or another, which says, where God guides, God provides. Now, that's not a quotation of a biblical verse, but that is a biblical concept. Let's turn, for example, to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. Paul says, Now remember to whom he's speaking, the Corinthian church. I thank my God always concerning you, for the grace of God which was given you in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm to you the end, confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Wherever that is needed for the ministry, we are enriched. And, and as he speaks to the Corinthians, he says, you're not lacking in any gift. Whatever is needed for the ministry of the church, it is there. God has provided it. And I believe that's a principle that is true virtually in every congregation, wherever it may be. Any congregation that has, let's say, 50 people or more, certainly virtually within that congregation there are people gifted with every area of ministry that that church should have. And when we don't see that happening, it's usually because either the gift has not been recognized or people are reluctant to use it. We have a real serious problem, it seems, in the, towards the end of the 20th century with commitment, lack thereof. People will not commit themselves for any length of time. It's clearly demonstrated, and by this I am not in, thinking of anybody in this room. I'm just thinking in a, broad, uh, in a broad spectrum. Of, For example, we have had in the past, here on Sunday nights, a series of teachings where there were classes we went to, and the classes were six Sundays or eight Sundays, and it was always interesting for me to watch. First Sunday, good crowd. Second Sunday, a little bit smaller. By the time you hit the eighth Sunday, you have about a third of what you had the first time. No commitment. <laughs> no seeking to follow through to the end. Not really understanding the importance of getting the whole pick. It's kind of like taking a class at the college 
and attending the first few classes, but kind of letting it drop off and then towards the end not going to class at all and expecting to learn anything. It doesn't work that way. Courses, at least at the collegiate level, are, are, are built as a unit together. And, and, and it's progressive through from, from beginning to end. And you get little pieces here and there and you become really dangerous because you pick up a little piece of information here and a little piece of information there and you don't have the coherent picture. And, and it's, it's not a good thing. But commitment, you know, commitment is what's needed to follow through to the end of whatever we've been called to do. Well, Moses is offering this excuse. God, of course, is not buying it. God will enrich him in his speech. God will enable him to be as eloquent as he needs to be. God enables us to be as eloquent as we need to be. When we aren't all of equal eloquence, of course not. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are some people who, you know, they, their processes of thinking and their processes of speech are a little slower than others. And others whose minds race beyond their mouths or their mouths beyond their minds, whatever. And, and so we're all different. But God gifts us with what is necessary to do what he has called upon us to do. So that we can give effective verbal witness and more importantly, and really, I really think this is true, more importantly, powerful lifestyle witness. Again, as I mentioned to you before, as you've heard certainly in other contexts, uh, as St. Francis said, witness to the Lord and use words if you have to. Our lifestyle is the most powerful witness we have. If, if we don't walk the talk, the talk is meaningless. And so the walk has got to be there to start with. God is faithful, and he will grant us whatever gift we need to do what he has called upon us to do. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. We, we have to stop and think about that. He will bring it to pass. We don't have to get up there and grunt and groan and push and shove to make it happen. We just have to be obedient. He will make it happen. And he can move hearts where we can't. You know? we, we, we focused on that last week or the week before, I, I don't remember which now, but there's no way that you or I can change anybody's heart. We can speak to them, we can show them, we can encourage them, but only God can change their heart. We, we can plant, someone else can water, but it's God who gives the increase, as we noted last week. God tells us the same thing he told Moses. If I call you to do a job, I will give you all that you need to do it. It's important for us to remember it's God who's doing the job anyway. We're just the tool, the channel. I've always thought of it in terms of we're, we're like plumbing. <laughs> we're like a pipe. And it's God who pushes through that pipe. And, and as long as that pipe is clear, the message goes through. We clog it all up with doubts and fears and disobedience. And then there's not much getting through. Every once in a while, God's got to do a rotor-rooter job to... Uh, make us the tools he wants us to be. Our job is to do three things. Our job is to study the Word of God. He isn't going to do that for us. We must study the Word of God. Our job is to learn to be effective in prayer. He wants us to learn that. 
And, and thirdly, our job is to live faithfully so that we have a lifestyle that witnesses to what we proclaim. It's like a three-legged stool. And you remove any one of those legs and it's not going to stand up. Got to be effective in prayer. We've got to be studying the Word. And we've got to have a lifestyle that supports what we proclaim. It's really, really important. God expects us to do those things. Now, He will empower us and enable us along the way. But we've got to have the commitment to do it. He's not going to just dump knowledge of the Word of God into our heads. I'm just walking along, you know, through life, and God's dumping all this stuff in, and I'm not studying or anything else. No, it's not going to happen. And, and, and I'm not going to be a prayer warrior for the Lord if I don't practice it and work on it and do it. And if my lifestyle is as cruddy as the lifestyle has been of some people who have been even in ministry in this country and who's made, who've made such a giant mess out of the whole thing, then the other two aren't going to matter much. In fact, if we're really studying the Word of God and effective in prayer, then our lifestyle will match. That's the way it goes. And God will enable us to do what we can't do for ourselves. And He will achieve His purpose through us, but we have responsibility. Moses has responsibility here. Moses had to learn that if God said he would do a job through him, that God was able to do that. You know, sometimes our fears are based on the fact that we don't really believe God will do it. We all will say, yeah, I know he's able, but will he do it? After all, look who I am. But if he's called us, he will do it. Now, Moses' faith is much stronger at this point, at this juncture, than it was when he first walked up to the burning bush. But it is still a very weak faith. And to me, one of the most powerful uh, stories of the development of faith is seen here in the life of this man, Moses. Picture him at the base of Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, with this puny little faith. But God, I can't do it. No matter what God says, what God does, I can't do it, Lord. And one year later, this man will be on the top of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and his life will exhibit probably the most powerful faith of any person recorded in scriptures except Christ himself. One year. Of course, it's a tough year <laughs> that he goes through. But that's why God puts us through tough things sometimes. So that our faith will become stronger as we go from the base of Mount Horeb to the top of Mount Horeb. Every objection offered by Moses has been answered by God. His last objection, which we read in verse 10, God answered very bluntly and quickly, Who made your mouth, Moses? God is long-suffering, as we noted last week. He had to be pretty long-suffering here with Moses. But there is a point in time when he expects faith and obedience to catch hold. And he says, no more excuses. Moses is at the point now where he must either obey and go, or just totally and blatantly refuse the commission and go another way. Now, what do we think of Moses? Oh, this powerful man of faith. And sometimes we don't really catch the actual meaning of verse 13. Let's go back to it. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Moses says, 
Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever thou wilt. Hmm. Now that sounds like Moses is saying, okay, Lord, whatever you wish. But that's not what he's saying. You can tell that by the reaction in verse 14. God says, then it says, the anger of the Lord burned. Now if Moses is saying, okay, okay, whatever you want to do, why would God get mad? Because Moses was saying, O oh Lord, send it by whomever else thou wilt. <laughs> he was excluding himself in his own thinking here. He is now flatly refusing the commission. No, Lord, you show me these signs, but the answer is no. I don't want to do it. Now, what could God have done? <laughs> We'd have had fricasseed Moses. Or God could have said, okay, forget you. I'm going to go get Aaron <laughs> or whoever, you know, Archibald, whatever, some person else. But he doesn't do that. For the sake of Moses and the sake of Israel, God does not do either. Is it logical to speak to the sovereign of the universe and say, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do? Remember when Jesus, it says in Matthew chapter 16, decided to explain to the disciples what was going to happen to him. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be crucified and uh, rise from the dead. And Peter takes him inside and says, no, Lord, you're not going to do that. No, Lord. No, Lord. I mean, how does that go together, you know? It's kind of an oxymoron when you think about it. And, and what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, is he, is he calling Peter Satan? No. He's saying, Peter, you're being influenced by Satan. So what is he doing here in Moses' case? Well, God is looking at Moses' heart. We have to be very, very thankful God looks at the heart. He knows what's down inside of each individual. And he knew that Moses' refusal was not coming from a stony heart. It wasn't coming from a selfish, indifferent, rebellious man. It was coming from a man who was petrified, terrified of the prospect, who was pleading, Lord, please send someone else. God's reaction in this whole incident here emphasizes that God was looking on the heart. And he knew that basically Moses' heart was right. Moses was not a disobedient man in his heart. He wanted to do what was right. But what he was saying was getting very, very close to blasphemy. So God allowed his anger to be shown. So Moses would wake up. I won't accept that, Moses. Now, we're not told in this passage of Scripture how God displayed his anger. But we realize from the passage Moses caught the point. However he displayed his anger, Moses understood. You know, whether the bush suddenly burned with greater fervency than before or simply God's words, whatever the case was, Moses knew that the weakness of his flesh should not stand in the way of him doing what God had commanded him to do. God would not take no for an answer from Moses. You and I are free moral agents. 
we have free will and we can choose to do what we wish. But we have to remember God is ultimately sovereign. And God said, Moses, I'm giving you all these chances and Moses exercised his will and the bottom line was God said, you're going to do it. We can be thankful for that. We can be thankful that we serve a sovereign God. A God who rules the universe and rules our lives and who isn't intimidated and, and who does not have to share his power with any other God. He doesn't go check with a council of gods and find out it's okay if he does what he does. And somehow, in it all, he brings us to obedience. He did make, however, one more concession to Moses. He said, okay, I'm going to allow your brother Aaron to be your spokesman. This did not in any way relieve Moses of responsibility of the task. It was his job to do the, the task. Aaron would simply be his mouthpiece, if you will. Aaron wasn't the one carrying the responsibility on his shoulders. But you know what's really interesting about this? And this is where God has a great edge on us. He knows the future. And, and God knew this is no big concession. Because once Moses really gets into this, <laughs> Moses is going to do what he's been told to do. Moses will speak to Pharaoh himself, not just through Aaron. Moses will speak to Israel, not just through Aaron. Because once he sees God's power being displayed and he sees the people hearing, his boldness will come and his fear will evaporate. And God will accomplish what he originally uh, intended to accomplish through Moses. Well, verses 14 through 17 of this passage complete the burning bush dialogue, if you will. Interesting dialogue, is it not? God speaking, Moses responding. Very one-sided, though. God makes this concession to Aaron, and then he goes on to instruct Moses how to use Aaron in, in the process and what their relationship to each other would be and to God. And then God just simply disappears. He hangs up the phone. You know, conversation is now over. You've offered all your excuses, Moses. I've answered all your excuses, Moses. Clank. There, there's no more room for any more excuses. Moses had his opportunity, and God has met him at every point. He has no further choice but to obey. Now, what's interesting is this is the first time Aaron is mentioned in Scripture. You go back to the Moses birth narrative, and you will, you will not find Aaron even hinted at in the Scripture. The only reference there is that Moses did have a sister, and she was supposed to watch him while he was floating in the, in the bulrushes there. Uh, she's not even named in that passage, just that there was a sister. But a brother is not named at all. But if you move ahead to the seventh chapter of Exodus, you'll discover that we're told that he had an older brother, his name was Aaron, and he was three years older than Moses. So he has this, this older brother named Aaron. And apparently Aaron was still living in Egypt, it's possible that even was one of the Israelite elders. We, we don't know, but it seems like very probable since his brother had held such a high position in Egypt that he may have had that privilege. Up to this point, we know nothing about Aaron except one thing. He was fluent of speech. God said so. So he must have been fluent in both Hebrew and Egyptian because when he stood before Pharaoh and spoke, he certainly wasn't speaking in Hebrew. He was speaking 
in Egyptian. Now, it's probable that Moses' Hebrew was a little rusty by now. He, I mean, his, um, well, that too, but, but his Egyptian, his Egyptian. He had been mostly speaking sheep lately <laughs> and <laughs> speaking Midianite with his wife and, and uh, father-in-law, or, you know, whatever was the universal language uh, that's still debated. In fact, the whole origin of, of languages in this time is still hotly debated and, and how, it, how it all evolved. But uh, nevertheless, his Egyptian was probably quite rusty by this time. But what is really interesting here is Moses is talking to God in the burning bush and God brings up Aaron. Now, Moses, you know, first of all, wow, you know, God knows my brother. Not only that, he knows he's fluent of speech. And not only that, he's coming to meet you, Moses. I mean, this right off the bat tells Moses, I'm talking to someone who is omniscient and omnipresent and obviously an omnipotent. He knows my brother is not even here. He knows he's coming to see me. And he knows he's fluent of speech. I think Moses and Aaron had not been in much contact lately. We have to always remember there's no telephone, no, no, no good postage program either at that particular time. And the question is, did Moses and Aaron have much fellowship even when Moses was living in Egypt? Aaron was his older brother, but where was Moses? He was in the royal palace. Did Aaron, you know, use that as a ticket to keep getting into the royal palace? I don't think that was allowed, probably. There probably wasn't much close fellowship. Once Moses was lifted out of his home, we had been weaned and, and went in to be raised by the daughter of Pharaoh, there probably was not much fellowship between Moses and Aaron. And now he's been 40 years living in the land of Midian, and Aaron is still in Egypt. What contact could they have had? Well, it's possible one of the caravans moving through from time to time, such as the one that carried Joseph off down into Egypt many several hundred years before, that messages may have been spent, sent by these caravans for a fee, I'm sure. And maybe Moses did send such a one to Aaron, but there's, there's no record of this. doesn't need to be anyway, because God can tell Aaron where to go and how to get there. But only an omnipotent God could tell Moses that your brother's coming to see you out here in the wilderness. My brother? He'd probably even forgotten about his brother almost. God promised now to widen his empowerment beyond Moses to include Aaron. There will now be two men going forth to accomplish this task. It still is born on Moses' shoulders, the responsibility, but now he will have a partner to do the work with him. He will be, God will be with Aaron's mouth to speak, and God will be with Moses. And he will give to both of them the boldness and the wisdom they needed to speak to Pharaoh and Israel. God says that Aaron will be as your prophet, the one who will speak on your behalf. And you will be to Aaron as God. Now, he doesn't mean that he will be like God to Aaron. He means that I will speak to you, Moses, and the Spirit of God will give you the wisdom for you to transfer to Aaron to speak to the people. 
So the prophet will get his message from, from his brother Moses. You know, it takes a little bit of humility on the part of Aaron to do this because Moses is his younger brother. Younger brother. And I'm sure Aaron had some feelings about the fact that Moses had been real uppity, you know, in the palace. Crown prince, possibly. And I don't really think there was a good relationship between Aaron and Moses prior to this time. And a little later, it does show up. Remember later on in the wilderness when Aaron and Miriam will get together and, and kind of basically say, hey, you know, why should Moses get all the glory for this? It should be shared with us. And God zaps Miriam, <laughs> and they quickly learn that humility is the better part of wisdom when you're dealing with God's servant. Moses will be indwelled by the Spirit of God to give to Aaron the words that are to be spoken to Pharaoh. God's final words to Moses in this encounter, as you read them in verse 17, simply say, when you boil it all down, get your staff, Moses, and get on with it. Take your staff, Moses, and get on with it. It's a point at which God says, you have talked long enough, you have dallied long enough, you have committed long enough, get to the task and do it. And that's what God is saying to Moses at this point. Next week, we'll start with verse 18, and we'll see how this scenario unfolds. Because Moses does not meet Aaron right there at that spot. Moses goes back home to Jethro, and God will then bring Aaron.